Head to netsuite.com slash briefing now for their one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Hey, everyone. I'm David Chalian, CNN's political director, and welcome to the CNN Political Briefing. One down, so many to go. The Iowa caucuses unfolded pretty much as expected, with former President Donald Trump winning a record-breaking 51% of the vote. The race for second place held a bit more intrigue as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis beat former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley by 2.1 percentage points. With DeSantis now putting more focus on South Carolina and beyond, it's in New Hampshire where Haley has to make her stand against Trump. He proposed when he was president he wanted to raise the gas tax up 25 cents. Those are things he needs to answer for. Oh, that's right. He won't get on a debate stage. Caitlin Byrd is the senior politics reporter at The Post and Courier in South Carolina. She's joining me today to talk about what's next for Haley as she campaigns to convince voters she's the only viable alternative to Donald Trump. Caitlin Byrd, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Hey, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So when Nikki Haley got into this race, you wrote a lengthy profile that I'm sure took you some time to uh, prepare and research. And I'm wondering, when you were looking into her background and putting that piece together in anticipation of her launching her presidential campaign, what did you learn that you thought would be instructive for how she may perform on the campaign trail? That is such a great question. And thank you for taking the time to read that lengthy piece that I worked on with two of my very talented colleagues. Um, We did put a lot of work and research into it. And there's a lot of work and research into it for a reason. There's a lot of history with Nikki Haley in South Carolina. And the one thing that I kept coming back to as we were looking at these different chapters, if you will, of her political life was how she really navigated that space between being an outsider and being an insider and how she often tries to find commonality above all else. So right now, where we are in the cycle, we've just finished the Iowa caucuses. We're looking ahead to see how she'll do in New Hampshire, where the electorate there may be a little bit more receptive to the more moderate message that she's pitching. You know, I think it's interesting that she's really getting attacked for being too moderate, for um, for having Democrat backers. And if you look back at a lot of Haley's life story and even her political career, she's always been looking for common ground. And a lot of politicians say that, but Nikki Haley really does that. But in a such a visceral Republican primary like this, where voters want a fighter, it's interesting that someone who's kind of talking about old school politics and a little bit of compromise and fighting when she can that she's getting really dinged for this thing that's really core to who she is, which is that advice her mother gave her to, you know, find that common ground and um, don't focus on the differences, find where you're the same. And so sometimes for a politician that can come off a little bit wishy-washy, but Nikki Haley's just always been looking for, okay, what can we get done together? And you obviously, as you were just discussing, looked at her childhood. I don't know if you've been to Bamberg, South Carolina or uh, not, but Is there something about um, her upbringing that you see day in and day out of how Nikki Haley conducts herself now, not just on the quest for compromise and advice from her mother, but just what being rooted in a community like Bamberg, South Carolina, uh, how that sort of, in your observations, presents itself in the Nikki Haley that the country's getting to learn today? 
Yeah, I think that from learning more about her childhood, you understand that she always felt like she, as she says on the trail, was a brown girl in a black and white world. And Bamberg is a very small place. It actually just got a tornado that tore through it, um, which has devastated that community. It's a really small rural pocket of South Carolina. So in many ways, she's been very comfortable talking to rural voters because she understands them. That is home base for her, by and large. But at the same time, Nikki Haley is really comfortable standing alone. And I think that's really important as we think about how this race has played out. You know, she is the only woman, but she's used to being the only woman. She's used to being the girl who's left standing, holding a beach ball at the end of a, a pageant where she and her sister tried to enter. And the judges told them, I'm sorry, we don't have a pageant for you because they judged it based on the black children in town and the white children in town. And they didn't have a category for her. And I see that playing out right now over and over again is this propensity to try to put Haley into a category. Is she a moderate? Is she a conservative? How Republican is she? You know, is she a warmonger as Donald Trump continues to, to now lambast his former United Nations ambassador that there's this propensity of while the rest of the world is trying to put Haley into a neat box and understandably even reporters like myself, we try to put her in a box because it makes our lives a little bit easier. Haley's always used to saying, screw the box. <laughs> Pardon my friend. You know, she's used to standing on her own and sticking out and, and she's comfortable. It's weird to say that she's comfortable being uncomfortable. But I think that that's something I see playing out over and over again. But do you think that she resists the box because she doesn't have like a firm core set of convictions? And so she doesn't want to be boxed in because she wants maximum political flexibility. And so she's sort of a chameleon that way. Or do you think it's not so calculating and that she just simply doesn't uh, fit into a box and that she has uh, far more complex and malleable uh, ideologies. I think it's a little bit of both, and I'm not trying to not fit into a box myself right now with your question. But I, I do think, you know, to say that Nikki Haley's just going along to get along, no. I mean, that's a very simple thing. And, you know, she can write about in her memoirs about how, oh, you know, I'm always looking for this and that. But she is a smart political animal in her own right. She understands the power of malleability. Let's use an example. Her speech on abortion earlier this cycle. We listened to that speech. It was supposed to be this big, major policy speech. That was the inbox that uh, the message that hit our inbox is major policy speech on abortion. We listened to her at Susan B. Anthony. And what does she say? She got up there and she was talking about how America has to come to consensus. That was the word that she continued to use. We need to come to a consensus and we need to have compassion. But what did that mean? She never said a, a, a week metric. She never said six weeks, 12 weeks, heartbeat, 20 weeks. She didn't draw a line in the sand. And at the time, many of us who listened to that speech walked away going, where does she stand? She said a whole lot of nothing. It was word salad. It was is compromise and consensus is consensus code for having a 60 vote threshold. And then you'll tell us what that means. Does consensus mean that the states ultimately are going to be left to decide? And that's that. We just didn't get that clarity. But now fast forward to where we are, you know, middle of January and all of a sudden, you know, you look back and that speech is brilliant because it is so malleable. She gets to continue to say, I'm leading with compassion. I think we need consensus. And compared to the two contenders that she's running against, 
you know, it's it's landing with a much more open conversation about something that is a very difficult topic in American politics that has long been a political football for both parties. So I think there's a lot of strategy going into that speech. There's a lot of crafting that goes in behind the scenes to which word choices are used. I think it's very intentional that she left it open to interpretation because it allows people to hear back what they want in their mind. And that's a brilliant political strategy and it speaks to her as a tactician. But it also does leave people with that question you're talking about, which is what do you believe? And I think that that is going to be tripping her up right now. Yeah, it certainly uh, seemed to be throughout this entire nomination race that she was positioning herself, not just for the nomination season, but for a potential general election when it came to the issue of abortion and not wanting to be locked in somewhere that may be tough to get out of should she be the nominee. You had mentioned she's um, not afraid to stand alone, and that's a comfort zone for her, and that you noted she is literally the only woman in this race, and so that is by nature uh, a solitary existence on that score for her. And I'm wondering if you think you have observed or in conversations with her aides that she has leaned into being the only woman in the field and utilized that in some way and courted maybe female voters specifically around that notion? Or does she tend to, as we see in Republican politics often, kind of shun identity politics in that way and so doesn't lean into what could be potentially an electoral advantage for her? Yeah. So when I think about Nikki Haley and how she navigates that, you know, identity politics piece, particularly when it comes to her being the only woman, she doesn't shy away from it. But I wouldn't say that she leans into it. I would say that she winks. She winks at the identity politics going on. And not to mention, she does literally wink when she talks about kicking in heels because they hurt harder. And she winks when she talks about being the first woman elected governor in South Carolina. It's always something that's more of a subtlety than an overt, hey, here I am. I am woman. Hear me roar. But at the same time, QI of the tiger, look out, baby, here I come. So it's really fascinating because she's doing something that Hillary Clinton took a different path, right? So like Hillary Clinton really did lean into being the only woman in the race to that idea of let's make history together again, Democrats. But with Nikki Haley, it's, yeah, I'm the only woman on the stage, but listen to what I have to say. But also, wink, wink, we all know you have the power to make history here. Wouldn't it be great to see a Republican woman in the White House? And when I spoke with her at uh, Mickey's Irish Pub in Waukee, I asked her about the women that she saw coming in large numbers to her events. And when I asked her about that and whether she thought women were, particularly conservative women, were ready for someone like her, I was kind of surprised by her answer because she said women are coming to her because they feel that they have been alienated by both parties. So she got off of her talking points for a moment to acknowledge that she is trying to appeal to women, both Republican and Democrat that they're looking for a home and she's trying to pitch herself as that comfortable home. But even if they don't align all the way politically, that she's trying to be that candidate for women who feel like the parties have alienated them. And I thought that was a really subtle, but very telling thing that Haley is acknowledging this power of being the only woman in the race. But again, she's gonna wink at it. She's not gonna come out with a megaphone and, and cheer from the sidelines about that reality that is also very plain to see. Stay right there. We're going to take a quick break. We have a lot more coming with Post and Courier reporter Caitlin Bird. 
The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. We're here with Post and Courier reporter Caitlin Bird, who has tons of experience down in South Carolina, Nikki Haley's home state, and where this nomination contest will largely focus uh, after next Tuesday's New Hampshire Republican primary. And Caitlin, let me ask you that question. Why, in your conversations with all your South Carolina sources, is Nikki Haley, who served as governor there for six years, Why is she so far behind Donald Trump in the polls in the Palmetto State? Let's face some some hard facts here, which is that the state has shifted right since Nikki Haley was governor of South Carolina. A lot of people have moved to South Carolina, many of them coming to the coast, many of them telling us, you know, that they were fleeing the pandemic restrictions of more Democrat or blue states. You know, this South Carolina has is taking a bit of a rightward lurch. And we can't forget just the power of Donald Trump. South Carolina is also the state that in 2016, South Carolina really affirmed Donald Trump's path to the Republican nomination. The state has an incredible track record going back to 1980 of picking the Republican presidential candidate that went on to become the GOP presidential nominee um, all the way back to 1980, with one exception in 2012 with Newt Gingrich, but every other time they've gotten it right. And I think that's something that's really powerful and something that we cannot forget as we move ahead to South Carolina. And in that contest in 2016, Nikki Haley was not initially with Donald Trump. She endorsed Marco Rubio, as did Senator Tim Scott, as did then Congressman Trey Gowdy. And there's this very iconic picture of the three of them, their hands up in the air. You may know the picture that I'm talking about. And at that time, there were so many think pieces that came out that said, is this the future of the Republican Party? And the answer came in Donald Trump. And that answer was no. And a small note I found really interesting throughout this research was that Nikki Haley came to that decision to endorse Rubio because she felt a connection to him. They were both, you know, sons and daughters, respectively, of immigrants who had come to America but before we even get to South Carolina, she's, she's got to take on Trump and, and DeSantis, respectively, in New Hampshire, where her message may have a better shot there. And if she can shake up the narrative in that race, you know, that's going to be really huge yeah. coming into South Carolina. I would just to deal with it uh, throughout the entire nominating contest. You're right to note the electorate here because of the role independents play in a New Hampshire primary, especially when. The only competition is on the Republican side. And so all those independent voters will want to play or a big swath of them in the Republican primary. It's a far friendlier electorate to her. It's also one that isn't easily replicated in South Carolina or anywhere beyond in the nominating calendar. When you look at how these Republican contests will take place with closed primaries, it gets much more reliant on true conservative Republicans that are the dominating force in the nominating electorate going forward. But there's something so fascinating to me. Well, two things. One, we should note 
Marco Rubio didn't return the favor, obviously. Uh, in, no, he did not. In, on the eve of the Iowa caucuses, uh, he endorsed Donald Trump. So uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, loyalty there from Rubio for for that uh, Haley endorsement at that time. And you're right. It was a striking image at that time, but also the resounding answer from South Carolina voters that that wasn't the future of the party. But Caitlin, I noted the day Donald Trump announced for president, basically, or one of his earliest political trips was to South Carolina, and he stood on the state house steps, and Lindsey Graham was there and endorsing him right away, even though Nikki Haley was likely to get in. I just wonder if South Carolina, I, I take your point that it moved, but if it turned on her or there's, did she not engender loyalty during her time as governor? Is there something about her and her relationship to local elected officials that just is not as strong of a bond as we see maybe with some other politicians? That is that is a really thoughtful and, and great question. And and I guess my initial reaction and, and thinking as I'm quickly running through the Rolodex of conversations that I've had in the last, you know, six plus years is that a lot of time has passed since Nikki Haley was at the helm. And even though she always brought it back to South Carolina, even when she was in positions of power at the United Nations, whether it was very subtle things like wearing her palmetto necklace, you know, the further removed you get from your time as governor, the more likely people are to maybe forget that connection that they may have had with you. Um, she was a state lawmaker before she was governor, but arguably she she really connected herself to the rest of the state during her time as governor, leading the state through a lot of crises, not just the shooting of Walter Scott in the back by a white cop in North Charleston, not just the church shooting at Mother Emanuel, but hurricanes, natural disasters, thousand year floods. There was at one point where it seemed like Haley had taken on this really unique role as consoler in chief of the state. So I think that's something to consider that the people who do feel a connection to her, it's because there may be some shared trauma and they remember how she led the state through some of its darkest days. But for people who may have moved to the state recently, they may only know her as Ambassador Haley. They may not have a personal connection to her as Governor Haley. They may only have a connection to her as Governor Haley in terms of seeing her giving the State of the Union response for Republicans during Obama's final speech to the joint session of Congress. So even though South Carolina has known her and is her home state and her home base, and arguably she's got the best name ID outside of Donald Trump in South Carolina, this is a state that is constantly changing. And I do think that there is this question of, will South Carolina be interested in lifting one of its own? Um, I don't know if that's going to be enough. And in conversations with Nikki Haley herself, it doesn't seem like she thinks that connection to her home state will be enough either. She's going to have to fight for it. But for those who do know her and remember her as governor, there's a bit of an internal strife here because it does seem like the Republican Party has been wrestling with this inflection point of what do we do about Donald Trump for quite some time? And now it's so interesting that we could be facing a reality where South Carolina is going to be playing an important role in deciding, do we stick with him or is it time that we maybe take a chance on someone that we already know here in the state? And that's a very different value proposition than what she's making in New Hampshire and elsewhere. We talked about earlier in the conversation about Nikki Haley and relationship to identity politics. And I just wonder what given how much time you've observed her, watching her over the last couple of weeks sort of tie herself in knots around the issue of race 
you know, she had that moment with an attendee at a New Hampshire town hall about whether or not slavery was the cause of the Civil War. And that drove days of news coverage that she was cleaning up. But even as recently as this week, she was asked a question about whether the Republican Party was racist. She answered and said, our country has never been racist, which raised a ton of questions just about how she thinks about American history and the role, the clear role race has played in the foundation of the country and in American history. And she doesn't seem to have sort of a, an ability to clearly answer that question without, again, some of that calculation in real time about not wanting to sort of offend people is what it seems to me. But I, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's it's been surprising how much uh, the 2024 Republican presidential primary has been talking about the Civil War. Um, and I, I live down here in Charleston where the first shots of the Civil War were actually fired. It's interesting how history continues to permeate the present. Look, race has always been a really tough topic to navigate for any Southern governor, but especially when you're the governor of South Carolina, which was the first state to secede from the Union in the Civil War, where we know that slavery was the driving force when we're talking about things in coded language like states' rights. You know, it's it's difficult because on the one hand, it kind of circles back to this idea of, of Haley talking about, you know, she understands because she's experienced it herself firsthand, right? She's seen the binary world that that America can live in. She acknowledges that when she says she was a brown girl in a black and white world. So she acknowledges that there is a part of America and even in her hometown that did see in very racist ways, black versus white, and there's no place for me. Where do I fit in? What does that mean? It is uh, a little bit tough, though, that she continues to go back to well-honed stump lines when she's talking about America is not a racist country. And she can't afford to alienate anyone right now, especially when she's got Trump and DeSantis attacking her for running a strategy that is reliant upon independent voters. How do you win a Republican primary with independent voters? That's something that DeSantis said just the other day when he was at the state house in her home state of South Carolina. Caitlin Byrd, reporter for The Post and Courier. Thank you so much for bringing your expertise, your reporting, your insights about uh, Nikki Haley as she enters this critical moment in her presidential campaign. Greatly appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's edition of the CNN Political Briefing. And we want to hear from you. Is there a question you'd like answered about this election cycle? Is there a guest you really want to hear from? Give us a call at 301-842-8338 or send us an email at cnnpoliticalbriefing at gmail.com. And you might just be featured on a future episode of the podcast. So don't forget to tell us your name, where you're from, how we can reach you, and if you give us permission to use the recording on the podcast. CNN Political Briefing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Madeline Thompson. Our senior producer is Haley Thomas. Dan DeZula is our technical director, and Steve Lichtai is executive producer of CNN Audio. Support from Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dianora, Lainey Steinhardt, Jameis Andrist, Nicole Pesseru, and Lisa Namoro. And special thanks to Katie Hinman. We'll be back with a new episode on Friday, January 26th. Thanks so much for listening.
Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com briefing. netsuite.com briefing.